questions will be on the screen. Take note of those this morning. Well, I hope everyone is, is doing well despite our insane weather or where we live. Um, it's always kind of like this. It's hot, cold, hot, cold. A few people have gotten sick maybe because of it or otherwise. But here we are this morning back in the Gospel of Luke. So I hope you're ready and already at chapter 22. If not, go ahead and turn there. You'll have a few moments before we get there. And we'll start in verse 47. I'm, um, I'm truly grateful, as I'm sure that you are, for the, for the messages that our two other pastors and elders preached over the past two weeks. I love sitting under their teaching. It is good for me uh, to sit under the preaching of the Word of God. So, uh, brothers, thank you for being faithful to the Word of God and to the church and being a blessing to the church. We're starting out this, this new year at the end of Luke, and Lord willing, we will finish our long journey in Luke's gospel at the end of March. That is the tentative uh, timeline. Don't hold me to that. Don't, don't hold your breath, right? Uh, however, that is, the, that is the plan. Now, the last time that we were together in Luke's gospel, um, we saw how Jesus and his disciples after leaving the upper room where they celebrated the Passover and Jesus inaugurated the, the, the first Lord's Supper for the new covenant that was about to, that was about to come in, they, they left the upper room that evening after a few other things that happened, and they went up into the Mount of Olives and then into the Garden of Gethsemane. And it was there in the garden late that night that Jesus prayed that most unforgettable prayer. Father, if it be your will, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The agony and the fear of Jesus that was on display in the garden, covered in sweats of drops of blood. However... It was also in the garden that Jesus shows us, showed us how he has prepared for the coming trials that he is about to face and the trials that his disciples are about to face. And when I say about, I mean immediately about to face. Verse 47, look there with me. And while... He was still speaking. There came a crowd. And the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to, kiss Je to, near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what what would follow? They said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And at once, one of them struck the servant. And the, high and the, the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. I don't know if he said it in that tone, but no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. And then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against him, Have you come out 
as against a robber with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the hour and the power of darkness. And this is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear, to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. How could the Son of God get caught up in such diabolical evil and betrayal? And we know the story. This isn't This isn't even close to being the beginning of the worst of it. Has Jesus, has God lost control of the situation? Was it supposed to happen like this? H.G. Wells, some of y'all may know, famous writer of the early, mid-20th century of science fiction, War of the Worlds, He once said that the world is like a great stage production directed and managed by God. He says that as the play begins, the the scenes are set up, the actors start to act, and they're going through their lines flawlessly, and all is well. But catastrophe strikes when one actor trips over a small rug, not taped down, and and falls off the stage. I fell off the stage one time in a really big production of Alice in Wonderland, sixth grade, and no one even knew it. That's how important I was. Actually, I was the March Hare. I should have been known, right? And I cut up and down my leg. It was bad. show must go on. Falls off the stage, and sets off a chain reaction, destroying the whole set. Everything begins to fall down. Now, I didn't do that. Like I said, no one knew. And destroying the the whole set and the whole play seems to be wrecked and ruined. And as Wells says that the director, God, is behind the scenes and he's pulling the ropes and he's shouting the orders and he's desperately trying to restore order in the midst of all the chaos. According to Mr. H.G. Wells, what could God really do at that point? I mean, it's collapsed. It's catastrophe. You see, to, to Mr. Wells, God could only do very little because his belief in God and who God was was little. God was limited, just like him. Reading, however, this whole situation of what happens to Jesus, on the surface, you you can kind of see how H.G. Wells can build this point of God is just trying to respond and react to the situation at hand and how everything's just kind of falling apart. Because despite Jesus' best intentions and teaching, doesn't it seem as if the whole entire night that was so well planned by Jesus just turns into a dumpster fire? The worst of the worst happens? 
I mean, Jesus gave them the bread and the, the wine of the new covenant in his blood. I mean, this is the, the highlight of the night, the promising forgiveness of new hearts and transformation. And then like pretty much after that, it's just like downhill. Judas is at the table and Jesus tells him, you're the one who's betrayed me and will betray me. He leaves. The other 11, blinded to their own ability to see their own sin, all begin to question one another. I bet you're the one who's doing it because I saw these things here. And then instantly that conversation turned into, well, if I'm not the one who's betrayed, then that's because I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. Peter is told by Jesus that you will deny me. And he tells the disciples that, that Satan has desired to sift you, to test you, to see you destroyed in these hours. Jesus tells them to be prepared for what's about to come. That as they go out preaching and taking the gospel of the kingdom of God to the, to the nation, to the nations, things were all going to change. And all the disciples could do when Jesus tells them to be prepared was say, look, we have two swords. And then in the garden, it looks like as if Jesus has lost all control. Overcome by fear, desperately praying for another way, for something to, to happen, the disciples fall asleep, not praying as they were told. Has the train come off the tracks? Has the plan gone completely awry? Has the stage production been ruined by one foolish actor that not even God could fix? Has God lost control? Now, I asked those questions and I wrote all of this down knowing I'm not fooling any of y'all. And I knew you wouldn't even be fooled by Mr. H.G. Wells. I think you know a picture of me, I guess. You wouldn't be fooled by any of that. And I have to say, the reason why we're not fooled by any of that is because of the grace of God. We know the answers to those questions. And when his trial began, immediately, we don't find a shocked, stunned, out-of-control Jesus. Have you ever been stunned? Have you ever been shocked? Standing outside when a lightning bolt hits close? That's fearfully stunning. And for those moments, you, you feel so small, so helpless, completely out of control in a sense because you've just pretty much lost all sense of what reality is because it seemed to have all gone in a flash. And for a few moments, you feel that way. But when the trial began for Jesus, and he know it's coming, Jesus, Jesus does not seem at all phased or affected. His world was not failing. It was not crashing. It was not out of control. 
That even though the, the evening that started out so promising seemed to descend into deeper, into darkness, and now ambushed by his enemies and betrayed by a friend, we see a Jesus who is not stunned, who's not shocked, and not out of control. Jesus was prepared. Remember what I said? He was praying in the garden. He was ready. He was prepared. We see our Savior in complete control and having complete trust in his Father. Knowing that regardless of whatever may come his way, whatever trial may he may face, that his Father's plan and the Father's will and that his Father and his character is always good. And that's what I want you all to see this morning. I want you to be amazed that even in the darkest moments of human history, humanity, I mean, humanity literally does not get any worse and wicked than in the betrayal, the abuse, and the murder of the Son of God. It doesn't get any worse than that. But be amazed at Jesus, who confidently submits to the Father, and for what? To the glory of God, to accomplish salvation so that sinners and enemies like you and me could be saved. So first notice, first notice Jesus' control even when he's betrayed by a kiss. Notice his control even though he is betrayed by a kiss. First two verses in our passage here, show us that. Let's picture in our minds and our little imaginations of what's, what's happening here. And if you look back at verse 46, I mean, in verse 47, actually could, could literally be the same verse, right? Uh, be, see, in the same verse, that is. Because Jesus comes back to the disciples after he was praying. He finds them sleeping and says, wake up, guys. Pray so that you may not enter into temptation. And then immediately before he can finish that sentence, verse 47, here comes the crowd. Here comes the mob. Here comes the group into the garden. And when you put this together with some of the other accounts from the Gospels, you get a little bit more clearer picture. John 18. John tells us that Judas knew where Jesus was going to be that night. He knew he was going to be in the garden that night. So he prepared the betrayal like he had already previously agreed with the religious leaders to do. To help them capture Jesus in a, in a, a, a quiet location, away from everybody, in the darkness. And all we need you to do, Jesus, is, is, Jesus, Judas, is to identify him. And the crowd. The crowd that came. The religious leaders, the, the chief priests, the, the officers in the temple and the elders. And John even tells us that, that some Roman soldiers even came with them. What in the world? Roman soldiers? Well, I'll just give you a side note why I think the soldiers came. It's because I don't think the chief priests really could trust the temple officers. You see, back in John chapter 7, I believe it's John chapter 7, the chief officers were told to go get him, Jesus, and bring him to him, and they didn't. They went to him, and Jesus, and Jesus like, did one of his maneuvers, 
and they didn't, they didn't get him. And so here comes soldiers, soldiers, and they failed to do so. They failed to bring him. But the, the point of all the Gospels, that all the Gospels makes in, in this account, is not necessarily the who's in the crowd, but really it's who's leading the crowd. It's who's leading the crowd, and that's Judas, one of Jesus' own. One of his best friends. You know, that, it's hard to make that effect on us. That's not very stunning to us because we hear the name Judas and we're like, I never named my kid that. Why? No one does. Because he's a betrayer. He wasn't the betrayer yet. He wasn't the betrayer yet. But to them, when Judas came, who's one of the twelve, and was leading them with their lanterns and with their weapons, and he drew near and he kissed Jesus, that was stunning and shocking. Mark's gospel says that as soon as Judas saw Jesus, he went up to him immediately. Like he, he ran to him, and he, and he even called him rabbi. Rabbi! And he kissed him. Remember, the kiss was uh, to, to Judas in this situation was to identify, hey, the one I kiss is Jesus, that's the one you arrest. Leave the other guys alone, right? He's the one. But kissing someone is an expression of love and appreciation and honor, especially in, in, in that day. Think of all the ways that, that kissing someone communicates. It signifies a, a, a new special love of the coming together of a, of a couple who gets married. On their wedding day, they kiss. A, a married couple expresses their love and their intimacy in one way by kissing romantically, right? Kissing someone on the hand communicates respect and admiration. Kissing someone on the cheek can show friendship and love. In the early church, the Apostle Paul exhorts them to, to greet one another with a holy kiss. No matter the kiss, a kiss always symbolizes something really good. Now, it's been distorted and used and abused, I get that. But it always communicates something good, even in our day. I mean, so, so this doesn't lose us, right, what happens here. And Judas takes something that is good and honorable and loving, something that he would do maybe almost every day to Jesus, whom he loved and honored, or at least showed that he loved. And he takes something good, respectable, honored, and sacred, and he uses it to betray the Son of God. J.C. Ryle says of that kiss, he says, to betray Christ at any time is the height of wickedness. But to betray him with a kiss proves a man to have become a very child of hell. Verse 3, back in verse 3, we know that this statement is true. For we know that Satan himself had entered into Judas. An act of the worst kind of betrayal in a kiss of death probably where that statement came from, that little song came from. But 
but it is in Jesus' response we see his control. Verse 48, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He asks him a question. We just have to kind of point out here what Jesus didn't say. The kind of things that we would probably say. Really, Judas? You're going to kiss me and pretend that you love me? I know what you're doing, man. You're going to sell me out like that? But if Jesus doesn't go in the direction of the flesh, instead he reaches out to him with the question, like he did in the Last Supper. He goes right after Judas's heart to expose to him the level of wickedness and depravity and evil that he is literally caught up in in that moment. Jesus' question is meant to warn Judas. Do you even realize what you are doing? Do you even realize what's at stake for here, Judas? You're the one on trial here, not me, man. I know what I'm doing. You don't. And this is like the fifth time in the evening Jesus has called Judas back. I mean, in the Passover meal, an indirect way, man. Repent. I'm the lamb. The Lord's Supper, man. Good news has come. Transformation has come. Repent. He even washed Judas' feet. He dipped his bread in the cup with Jesus. Open up your eyes. Can you see what you're doing? And the answer to the question is no. Even when Jesus is betrayed with a kiss by one of his own, we see how Jesus is in control. He's trusting the Father, and in that control and in that trust, we see his care for even his greatest into the greatest betrayer of all of history. How in the world could Judas look into the face of God and hear his caring words for the last time in a warning and still doesn't turn? You know, that reminded me of the kind of question we ask ourselves sometime in agony. Why won't my loved one or my friend who is lost repent and turn to Christ? Even though I pray and I pray and I pray and I share the gospel with them. And I've been doing this for many years. Why? The answer is simple, but hard. There's no magic in our prayers. There's no magical words that can change the heart and to break the scales of blindness to the glory of God and to their wickedness of their sins. The work of salvation for anyone. It doesn't have to be a Judas, but for anyone. Everyone is blind and all, excuse me, are enslaved to their sins. From the beginning and to the end of salvation is all a work of the Holy Spirit. He alone breaks our darkness. He alone breaks the hardness and he opens our eyes and our hearts to see our sin and our depravity and our helplessness. But he also opens our eyes to the glories of Christ and to the beauty of God's grace 
given to us in the gospel, which brings us to repentance and faith and running to him. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So, so friend, when you are praying for your family member or your friend, continue to pray. Continue to ask the Lord to do the work that only he can do. But be like Jesus who is in control, calling them to repentance, calling them to faith in Christ, even if it is your last words spoken to them. Let it be that. Second, we see Jesus' control even when his disciples are impulsive. I could put myself in that category. Jesus' control even when his disciples are impulsive. So right after Judas comes up and he kisses Jesus, he's now identified to to the other crowd, who he is, and now it's about to go down. And funny, I thought this was just interesting, at this moment, finally, the disciples just kind of get it. Like, oh, this is happening. And, and, and one of them asked Jesus, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? We still have them, two of them, in fact. Before Jesus could answer the question, one of them pulls out the sword and he strikes the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. And we know from John, John chapter 18 again, that this disciple was Peter, the solid rock. And the servant was Malchus, M-A-L-C-H-U-S, Malchus. Now, Side note, this is not even in my notes. Side note, why would the other Gospels not put that detail in there? I mean, clearly they knew. Let me tell you what I think. I think it's the per, kind of, of a protection of Peter, that in his first years of ministry that he wouldn't be known as that kind of moron. And John was one of the last books, one of the last Gospels written. So after a while, Peter had some tenure and some authority. I think that's good. I think that's good. And poor, uh, poor John probably writing that letter to Pete. Hey, Pete, it's coming out now. It's time. So we know who it is. We know it's Peter. And we know it's Malchus who got his ear cut off. Now, now who knows what Peter really was aiming at? You think he was aiming at his head? I, I really don't think so. I I'm not a really 100% convinced that, that Peter just didn't pull out his sword and start swinging his sword, kind of like my kids do when they're playing with sticks. You know, swing kids do with sticks and swords. They're just swinging. They have no skill about them. I think that's what he was. It's kind of like a, get back, get back. And, and Malchus just was there, and the thing came down, and gone. Ear off, right? Ear cut off. I think that's what he, that he was doing. He was scaring them, uh, scaring them back. But, but either way, either way, Peter pulling out the sword to fight back was actually playing into the hands of the mob. Oh, this is what they wanted. This is what they 
they needed. This is the, the evidence that we need to tell the Romans, hey, Roman soldiers, see, these are violent people. They are revolting against the Caesar. They are rebellious, and they want anarchy, and they want to overthrow your kingdom. See how violent they are? And this is their leader. Kill him. That's what they wanted. And Peter was playing right into that particular hand. That would be, lead to the surety of Jesus' death. But Jesus wasn't having any of it. Verse 51, he says, no more of this. He touched the ear, picked up the ear, he touched the ear, and he healed him. He touched his ear, and he healed him. Stop fighting. Stop the violence. We're not starting a revolution. We are not starting a rebellion. They're not going to sling those kind of, that kind of mud at me. Well, they do anyways. The kingdom of God is not established by rebellion, and it is not made with swords. You see, Jesus' whole ministry, as he says later in verse 52, his whole ministry was not done in secret. It wasn't in the darkness. It wasn't in the shade. It wasn't under the bridge, hidden, that no one could see. But it was in the public. It was in the light. It wasn't going to go down like this. And there's a valuable lesson that Jesus shows us here in telling his boys to lay down their swords. That this is not the time for drawing the sword. But as Jesus does, but to accept the providence of God. He showed us and showed them to accept the providences of God. The will of God. And this is such a lesson for his disciples who will face many trials the, themselves. This is also a lesson for us. A lesson for us when we face trials and suffering, when enemies of the gospel come against us, when we are slandered, when we are marginalized and, and kicked out. What does Jesus show us in control and confidence? He shows us trusting the Father. He shows us trusting the Father to endure hardship and suffering, and pain, and persecution. And that is what we are called to endure a whole lot more compared to fighting. Pulling out the sword, the weapons of this world. These are the ways of the world. And the ways of the world and fighting is way easier than enduring. It's way easier than enduring. It's why so many would rather fight than endure. J.C. Ryle, again, says, Crusaders will always, will always be found more numerous than martyrs. Because it's easier. And Jesus is not only our example of suffering, but he shows us how to suffer and how to trust and how to accept the providences of God even when they are bitter. Our only motive 
for any of our endurance is the grace of God. It is only by the grace of God that we have been saved. And it is only by the grace of God will we be kept. And it's only by the grace of God that we shall endure. Show me a Christian who is suffering well, enduring persecution, slander, and patience, and without complaining or murmur, then I'll show you a Christian who deeply understands the grace of God. We endure and we persevere by God's grace like Jesus being arrested. We accept the hard, bitter providences of God that come our way, knowing that the role that it plays in our lives as a witness to his glory and a witness to his grace for our lives and a witness for the gospel. We will see more people come to Christ through our endurance and through our endurance in our suffering than we will ever wielding the swords of this world. May the Lord teach us. May the Lord teach us to not wield the swords of this world, but to wield the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, as Jesus did. That we may wield it well. But of course, there's, there's more in this little section here, right? He heals Malchus. He heals Malchus. What, and, and what's amazing is after he does this, I mean, Jesus' hands at that point will be bound. Will be, will be bound together, and they will not be let loose again until he is nailed to the cross. So his last act with free hands is to what? To perform the miracle of healing Malchus, who came as his enemy. Who came as his enemy. Who came a part of the mob to arrest Jesus. My, my friends, this is a, a picture of the gospel. It's a picture of of the gospel of of grace, an act of mercy toward an enemy. It's a picture of mercy and grace that he has extended to sinners like you and and, and, and like me. For was it not our sins too that stood accusing him and mocking him and nailed him to the cross? But even though we were enemies, Christ still died for our sins and brought about our healing. Maybe this morning, because of sin, you might be believing that you are beyond anything that God or Jesus could do for you. That you're beyond forgiveness and beyond healing. I mean, it's a Christian, you know, we can even still feel that way. We can still feel the same way. I mean, it's just kind of unforgivable at this point. That that healing just seems impossible because of my sins. But brothers and sisters, see the words, hear the words that Jesus gave to Judas in his final acts of love and mercy to Malchus. And remember the gospel, that it's all about saving sinners and healing sinners, people who were enemies, those who have come to arrest him and accuse him and to see him die. Those are the ones he came to save and to redeem and to heal. But not just our ears, but our hearts. 
made new. So repent and come. Turn from sin and run to the Lord. Who would have thought in just a simple little act there could be so much good news? We say simple, we can never do it, but amazing. Jesus' control, even when his disciples are impulsive, he proclaims the gospel and what he does. Lastly, we see Jesus' control even in the hour of darkness. Even in the hour of darkness. Jesus turns and he speaks to the crowd. Chief priests, officers of the temple, and the elders, the soldiers. And what he says to them in verse 52 and verse 53, these are, these are stern words of rebuke. He points out the hypocritical obvious of their diabolical deed. He says, you could have taken me any time. And the reason why you didn't is because you feared man. They were the lawless ones. They were the ones who had come in, in darkness. Jesus wasn't out of control. He was bold. And exposes the mob that came to arrest him. He confidently was trusting in the Lord, and he tells them, this is, this is your hour. This is, this is your hour. This is not only the, the hour in which he would be under their control, but this is the hour of the climax of human depravity. When fallen human beings exercising their free will of sin. They protected their darkness to murder the light. They have come scheming to kill it. In darkness, literally, they bring darker darkness. And it's their hour. And how fitting the next day when Jesus is hung on the cross, he's bearing the full wrath of God, that actual darkness descends over the land from noon to 3 p.m. This was their hour of darkness. Now think about this, what he says to them. Even in light of watching Malchus's ear be healed. They still could not see the light. Because man loves darkness rather than the light. This was their hour. But it was also hell's hour. Where the power of, of darkness, Satan's rule of dominion, this was now the open opportunity that he had been waiting for. He had been waiting for it to come against the Son of God since he was bested in the wilderness by him back in Luke chapter 4, I believe. Their hour 
was also hell's hour. Because fallen humanity had become instruments in Satan's assault against Jesus. When given over to sin, as Judas was, and as they were, Satan, as they were, Satan was using them as instruments of evil. And religious leaders, they might have thought that they themselves, they were free, and they were acting and serving God in their own way, arresting Jesus, beating Jesus, and condemning Jesus, no matter what it took, right? This is a no matter what it took. We're not going to go by the book on this one, boys. He's got to go. Whatever it took, the ends justify the means. But they were slaves to their sin. And in that slavery, they were instruments to the desires and the plans that came straight from hell. Now, as dark and evil as those hours were, it was also another hour. For Jesus told us earlier in verse 14 in the upper room that when the hour came, he reclined at the table. And this just wasn't the hour of the Passover and of the Lord's Supper, but it was pointing to the hour of the time of the redemption on the cross. The hour that had been predestined before the foundation of the world. The hour decreed by God, the Father, for the Son to fulfill the work of salvation on the cross. This hour that Jesus said was their hour and also the hour of the power of darkness is ultimately and preeminently heaven's hour. We should sing on that one. Because there is so much to see there. God is sovereign and Satan is a pawn. He is just an instrument used by God for his glory. Satan and man are pitiful stage directors. They're the ones pulling the ropes and the levers to accomplish their will. But God is sovereign ruler of the universe and that his predestined plan that he has ordained will be accomplished and has been accomplished. He will work all things out according to his glory and for our good. And as we read last week and studied last week in Psalm chapter 2, he sits in the heavens and he looks at their plans, the little stage directors pulling their ropes, and he laughs at their derision, laughs at them. He laughs and he holds them in derision. Ha! We'll laugh with them. That's right. I just want to quote all of Romans 8 to you right now. But we will in a minute. We're not the whole thing. That's why Jesus confidently records and he says in Matthew in his account, he says this. He says, don't you think that I cannot appeal to my father who will at once send me 12 legions of angels? But now, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? every step that evil man and Satan carefully choreographed for Jesus Christ was actually a step toward our salvation ordained by God and decreed by God. Brothers and sisters, when darkness descends upon our lives and it seems as if evil is in complete control and that it's dictating our every step for our destruction, look at the example of our Savior who confidently understood the sovereign control of God the Father 
And no matter whose hour it may be, it is always heaven's hour. He walked through such darkness for us that God is now our Father. And His hour is always for our good. How else could Paul say through the Holy Spirit, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. It is always heaven's hour. And he is always working these things for our good and for his glory. So I think it's pretty safe to say that we can throw out the whole idea of the stage play. That the director lost control. Jesus wasn't crushed underneath the wheels of history. He wasn't just, he wasn't ambushed by a crowd and betrayed by a kiss and, and had to deal with the impulse, impulsivity of his disciples and heal Malchus out of nowhere. It was their hour, and it was the power of the hour of the power of darkness, and it was clearly at hand. Evil was at work, but underneath and in control preeminently was God's sovereign plan appointed before the foundation of the world. You know, the good news, the impulsivity of Peter, he finally got it. And not too long later, around 50 days later or so, on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, he preached this. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Men of Israel, these are the people who who arrested, beat, and crucified Jesus, or at least were yelling in the crowd the same thing. He said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man arrested, attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs like healing Malchus that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen. And even though it was their time, and it was our darkness, and darkness would devour him as Peter proclaimed, death and darkness could not hold him down, for God would raise him from the dead. Christ is victorious so that now we could be victorious over our sin and death because he took our death, he took our punishment so that we could be forgiven. We have a Savior who triumphs in, in his darkest hour and can deliver his children from their own. And our darkest hour is our sin. And he has walk through his darkest hour so that we would not have to bear the consequences of our dark hours or years. But do you believe it? 
have you been delivered? Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us in Christ, your Son. Thank you for Jesus. That even though in the darkest of hours, when humanity was at its worst, you were still showing us the glory of the gospel. You were showing us our sin, but you were also showing us the love of God in Christ and what would come in the atonement of the cross. You knew things were not out of control, but your will was being accomplished so that sinners like me and sinners like us could be saved. And to that, Lord, we say thank you to your glory, to your praise, to your honor. Lord, be with us as we respond now for the glory of your name and for our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.